I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcasts. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. One of the hardest hit areas of this pandemic has been the airline sector, with a number of air companies going to the government and getting bailouts. Unclear, though, how much longer that will sustain them, especially. If air traffic and people taking flights does not increase dramatically. Joining us now, I'm so glad to say, is George Ferguson. He is Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And George, you came out with a research report saying that you don't expect the air traffic to increase to, two, uh, to 2019 levels for another five years. Can you explain? Yes. Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me. We, we, were, we took a look at previous downturns. And just wanted to get a sense for how long it takes to recover back to the total level of flying you know, before that downturn. So we looked at September 11th and we looked at the financial crisis. And we saw in both cases, um, it, was, it was a number of years uh, until you recovered back to the level you had seen, again, just before that, uh, just before that downturn. And so, um, you know, we really think that this is going to be even worse, right, than uh, September 11th or uh, the financial crisis. For example, U.S. Airlines have parked some 3,000 airplanes at this point, close to 50% of their fleet. They, they got nowhere near there. But I think we were less than 1,000 on September 11th. Um, and I think the recovery after September 11th and the financial crisis were a lot easier because in one, you had to prop up banks and the others, you, you had to just improve security procedures. So we think you're into 2025, 2026 before we see a 2019 level of flying. It doesn't mean airlines can't make money before then. They can. They'll have to slim down to the market size. But we think it'll take it that long for us to get back to the level of flying we were doing in 2019. Well, George, I can give you a primary research data point here. I'm right in the flight path of Newark Airport, and there's literally nothing in the air right here. So yeah, you can attest that the planes aren't flying. So you mentioned that we've got a lot of these planes uh, just parked on the ground. How quickly can the industry ramp up um, to meet demand if and when or when it does come back? So I think it, it's all depend on, it all depends on how quickly you get that demand to come back, right? A lot of these airplanes are sitting on the ground at airports around the world. In a lot of cases, they've shut down uh, you know, runways and just parked them there. And so if we got a, a, a nice rebound by the back part of the year, and we're starting to see airlines try to get that schedule, increase that level of schedule so they can figure out if that rebound can come. If we get a rebound by the end of the year, you can get a lot of those airplanes right off the tarmac and get them back into the air. As we push into 2021, if we don't get a recovery and – uh, and at Bloomberg Intelligence, we're not, we are not we don't really see a recovery we, until we get a vaccine, and we don't see that into next year. So if we don't get that kind of recovery into next year and it's mediocre, a bunch of airplanes are going to get torn down. And as those airplanes get torn down, it obviously takes capacity away. Um, 
and look, we think Airbus and Boeing will be producing at, at levels a lot lower than they were producing right before the downturn. Boeing had the max problems, but sort of ignoring the max problems, we think that they're not going to be building that 60 and 57 a month uh, narrow-body airplanes for a while. But they could spring back pretty quickly, given that they've already been to that level um, and supply the, the industry with airplanes. I don't think that's going to be the problem, though. Okay, George, you're saying that you've got airlines that are going to be tearing down airplanes. You have Boeing, et cetera, not producing airplanes. Meanwhile, you've got the big air companies cutting capacity in the United States by 74%. Going forward, I'm just wondering, are we going to be paying a lot more if we want to fly and many fewer people are going to be flying just for the foreseeable future? Yeah, so we see some of that speculation in the marketplace and I find it interesting. I think if you have to increase the distance that people sit from each other on an airplane, you're going to have to see an increase in fares in order for airlines to make money at that level. But before I think you get to that level, the problem you have in the interim is there's a lot of capacity. And so usually when there's a lot of capacity, there's a bit of a market share battle. And so I think air, um, airlines would not be able to command the prices they need probably even a break even with, with more social distancing on airplanes. Longer term, I think if there's no cure uh, for coronavirus, if we're in this for a longer haul, I think you could see that increased cost as as the industry slimmed down, cut the number of seats available, and then went out and charged the appropriate fare given the distance you occupied on the airplane. You know, George, I'm glad that you went to the competition standpoint. I'm struck by United Air, which is trying to raise money right now in the high-yield bond market and struggling to do so. Uh, It's offering 11% yields for short-term financing, three- to five-year financing. And nobody is buying, or very few people are buying, because they're saying, what are you going to look like on the other side of this? I mean, how much are we going to see bankruptcies or or companies just go out of business if they can't compete uh, at a time of such strained finances? Yeah, so you know, we think we think that most of the U.S. carriers, I think all the carriers actually, the big ones are fine until the end of this government support program. And so I think if United fails in this financing, they always have Treasury financing that they can go after. Um, and I think they just want to avoid it right now because they don't want to have that limitation on share buybacks and dividends, and probably even. Um, uh, executive compensation, but they're not going to probably say that to us. Um, and, and, you know, so w- what we're seeing in the marketplace is I'm trying to get this bond deal done. And the noises we've heard from the marketplace is that the collateral package inside that is some is older airplanes that just aren't that desirable, right? So I really think it's an indicator for some of the airlines and, and uh, the big ones, I think Delta, American United, uh, are in that package. They're coming to the end of what they have that they can collateralize to get more, to take down you know, more debt and get more cash. And so again, if we get to the end of the year, demand has improved dramatically. Um, they're going to need more money to survive. I think the U.S. government is going to have to think about whether or not they want to continue to support these airlines uh, if there's no demand in the marketplace because they just can't keep burning this level of cash and even going out and issuing debt to get more cash that's not a viable sort of option, you know, over a course of a year or something like that. So I think that's going to be a that's going to be a big question we're going to have come fourth quarter. George, are we learning anything from China as that economy begins to open up in terms of kind of how 
consumers are coming back and air traffic. Yeah, so we're we're watching China closely, and in the report we put out today, yeah, you know their schedules are down thirty percent or so, actually a little bit less than that. In this one compared to last year, significantly better than we've seen out of Europe and the U.S. Europe is still down some, almost ninety percent. Schedules are um, actually seats in the marketplace are, and U.S. Seventy plus, we're approaching sort of eighty percent. Um, the Chinese bounce back looked a lot better than the bounce back we're getting out of Europe and the U.S. And one of the challenges we have is we're measuring seats in the marketplace, and we don't know load factors. And so, so we suspect a lot of these Chinese carriers are state-owned entities, and they're going to survive no matter what. We suspect the load factors might be very, very low on some of those flights. But the bounce back does look a bit better um, than the the U.S. and Europe. And look, this could be because, um, you know, their quarantining was better and they're starting to spring back. We've seen some stuff in Hong Kong that makes us believe their quarantining and social distancing was better and their measuring of people in contact with other people was better. So you might see in economies where you can really lock them down harder, you might see a spring back sooner. George Ferguson, uh, who we're speaking to right now, is Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. George, I want to go back to something that you were talking about, and it goes to corporate governance. There has been a lot of questions about corporate governance at some of the U.S. airlines after the massive stock repurchases and dividends paid out with the money borrowed over the recent years. And you're saying, if I heard you correctly, that United Airlines does not want to tap the Federal Reserve program because it doesn't want to be limited by buying back stocks or uh, limited in how much it can compensate its executives going forward. So it's willing to pile on more leverage with 11% yields in order to avoid that. Is that correct? So that, I mean, that's our take on the situation right now is they would prefer not to take the government loan. And look, actually, you know, I, I shouldn't be, you know, maybe I shouldn't be just so aggressive because the terms of it's the okay. Government it's loan just program, shocking to me. <laughs> Go ahead, be as aggressive <laughs> as you'd well, like. Well, the ter- remember though, the terms of the government loan program say that they can't have money available in the marketplace for them to take the money from the government. And look, I think at nine or ten percent with a collateral package behind it, I think that. That means that there's not that money available to them in the marketplace. But yes, I think they would prefer to have much more flexibility coming out of this. I think that's one of the reasons Boeing passed on, it, on the on the loan program initially. George, I guess the question is one of the questions obviously right now is: Is there are there any major airlines that are really at risk that there might need to be a government bailout? Uh, in the U.S., I don't think so. I think for the next couple quarters, I think they're. They're okay, and they're but they're all trying to sort of bridge finances well into twenty twenty one. So I think for right now we're okay in the U.S. We haven't seen the same response globally, and we've seen some failures. Virgin Australia was one, um, and so I think in those countries where you're not getting that response, you're going to see those failures first. This is a transformational time. We were just talking about the transformational nature of the work from home experiment. There is a question, as Paul raised, about the nature of big cities going forward, the popularity therein, as well as the uh, risk reward dynamic of owning a home. Joining us now, Logan Motoshami, senior loan officer at AMC Lending and a contributor to Housing Wire. Logan, a real question here, especially as mortgage rates 
drop on the average, but increase for larger loan amounts based on concerns that banks have. Are you seeing demand drop drop off precipitously in the most densely concentrated urban areas? Well, we had about five straight weeks of declining purchase applications, uh, and the last two weeks have seen an increase. So, uh, and credit, the, the initial tightening of credit that we saw with higher mortgage rates and non-QM loans going out of business, we're starting to see just a little bit of light in terms of they're bringing some of the credit standards down. So, uh, again, if you have a job, if you make money, if you have a down payment, you can get a loan because Freddie and Fannie are still working. They, they were never taken public. So the, the system is there. It's just that credit is tightening as it should. We have about 33 and a half million jobless claims. You know, that's how the game works. When you have risk uh, out there for defaults, credit should get tighter. But re- reasonably speaking, it's not, it's not like 2008 where we have had all these uh, credit bubbles, uh, over-leveraged homeowners, and then home prices crashing. If home prices were falling, it'd be much different. So I think as, as tight as the credit standards have gotten, it's very reasonable in a, in a cycle where lending standards were very reasonable. So Logan, has there been in any of the fiscal stimulus provisions for residential mortgage market, or do you expect any in the future? Well, they're trying to deal with this forbearance issue. And the first estimates, you know, some people are thinking there's only going to be a million loans that are forbearance. So it could get up 7, 8, 9, 10, you know, 12, 15 million. So the market has to deal with that. But pretty much outside of that, a traditional 30-year fixed loan, if, you have, if you're working and you have a down payment, you can get a loan. I think that is part of the aspect of purchase applications rising the last two weeks. Uh, so I think in, it, it, it's not as bad as it seems. What we've seen is lower FICO score FHA loans are kind of out of the mix. They weren't that big of the marketplace anyway. These high jumbo loans, you know, for these homes over a million, which is not that big of a marketplace, that's been hit. Cash out loans, the pricing has been hit, so that loan, that product is, is not as popular anymore. And then uh, the home equity line, some lenders are taking that off. I think that's all fine. I think in, in, in this kind of environment, that's what you should see. We had the best loan profile, you know, in the longest job expansion ever, and we're doing what should be done to mitigate risk. And as long as home prices don't fall in a persistent force, which they shouldn't, then uh, this is about as tight as you're going to see. And then if economy reopens again and jobless claims start to fall, credit will loosen up a little bit. And, but we, we, we've had really vanilla standards for 10 years. So we should just be going back to that once jobless claims fall and, you know, you see some of the economic data get better because then the risk starts to go away. Logan, you say the only thing is if uh, housing prices fall precipitously. That doesn't seem to be happening on average around the country with actually home prices increasing, reflecting the lack of supply that people aren't putting their homes on the market during this period. Again, though, I go back and and I sound like a a broken record, I know, but in some of the urban areas, I'm talking about coastal cities uh, that saw huge run-ups in prices of some of the real estate and and great building booms, are we going to see precipitous price declines there, not only because of people losing their jobs, but because of a shift away from urban centers? When we look at the unemployment rate today, 21.2% is people without a high school education. 
like 8.4% for college-educated Americans. Uh, people that own homes in that bracket typically have a lot of levers to pull. This isn't like they don't have a credit bubble. They had six low-debt products and nested equity. So uh, I, it, we should be worrying about renters more than, uh, than coastal high-end areas. Now, of course, it's going to take a lot longer to sell those homes. That's, I think that's the thing, is that it's not like it used to be. These homes always took longer to sell. Over time, if things don't get better, prices will come down. Because for right now, what we're seeing is we're seeing decline in sales and we're seeing decline in listings. And, and that could only go for so much longer because once you reopen the economy, more people are going to put their homes on the market to sell. I don't know how much we're going to see the higher-end homes but if, if it continues with what the middle and lower end homes are going to be, you're going to see more listings come out, and there's where you're going to see your uh, uh, price decreases out there. But for right now, uh, listings are down, sales are down, because nobody, why would you put your home in a market in this kind of environment? You want to wait till lockdown protocols are taken off, then we'll see. Then we'll see. So I'm, I'm kind of telling everybody, wait until July. See the June existing home sales market, because right now, Sellers are preventing any kind of natural flow of supply in a, in a recessionary environment. Maybe they do that for the rest of the year, but at some point, people do need to sell their homes. So I think we need to be a little bit patient on the housing data to make kind of any assumptions on the higher-end homes out there because it's, it's one of these things where the homeowner, unlike 2008, doesn't need to sell their homes. Right. And I think that's the thing that people are missing out on the housing market. Just real quick here, Logan, I'm wondering, you said renters are the real point of concern. J.P. Morgan's asset management arm uh, today released a statement that they were increasing its bet on single-family rental homes, more than doubling the size of a joint venture with landlord American Homes for Rent. I'm just wondering, what is the fate of rental properties at a time when so many people are in uncertain circumstances with respect to their wages? You know what, I I think that type of uh, investment... uh, J.P. Morgan is doing is still predicated to college-educated or skilled wages. When I talk about the rental deflation, I'm talking people that were struggling with rents all the way through the expansion, and all of a sudden this happened, and you know whatever the number is, 27, 33 percent are not paying rent. Those people are not the single-family renters. They're never going to be home buyers. That's the stress market because typically those are low-wage jobs, and a lot of these are dual renters and even one household. So. Uh, I, that investment, I think, will keep on going for time and time again just because there are certain people that can't afford bigger homes, so they rent. And I think that investment is prudent for J.P. Morgan going out for decades because in some of these areas, you really have to make money. You two, dollars $300,000 at least to be owning homes in some of these areas. So if you make one hundred or 120000 Renting might not be a bad choice for yep. you. So I, I understand that investment that J.P. Morgan is making. I just think that we, we need to separate the distressed renters from the kind of the right. middle to higher wage rental households. Logan, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. As always, Logan Moltashami, Senior Loan Officer for AMC Lending Group, also a columnist for the Housing Wire, getting an update uh, on the housing market and the uh, mortgage market in the U.S. facing unprecedented uh, pressure here uh, as 30 million Americans since the beginning of the pandemic have lost uh, their jobs. We'll have more. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? 
which companies from big tech to startups will dominate, and where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions, alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, with more and more people working from home and making uh, all the necessary accommodations, the question is starting to pop up is what does it mean for the traditional office, the traditional office space? And will people make changes going forward to get a sense of kind of where that, how that might play out? We welcome Tom Stringer, Tom's corporate real estate advisory managing director, site selection and uh, incentives for the firm BDO located in New York City. Tom, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, are we, is this going to change how the workplace of the future looks? Am I going to ever get back on a train, come into the city, hike up to my skyscraper, or is work from home kind of going to be something for the future? Well, good morning to both of you, and thanks for having me. And, and unfortunately, if you're a commuter in a New York City like myself, yes, I think we will both be slugging it out through Penn Station again. Uh, I, I don't think the, the corporate office environment is, is going away entirely, but I, I certainly think that there's some changes that are being discussed. Uh, you know, in the last couple of years, we've certainly seen the matriculation to the open office concept, uh, you know, lower desks collaborative areas, um, a lot of uh, cafeteria and conference room space. What we're, we're seeing right now are discussions towards really kind of uh, backing up a little bit towards more office space that might be uh, a little more familiar to, to those who started working in the 80s or 90s, where you're seeing maybe higher uh, uh, cubicles kind of taking hold again. That's being discussed. More private offices smaller than, than previously, but more private offices. So you're certainly seeing those discussions around how do we change the, the actual physical environment, the workflow in the office, such that we can get people back. Um, but, you know, the one thing I would also mention is that we'll probably have smaller offices, meaning uh, total square footage, because the, the work from home experiment that's taken place over the last you know, six to eight weeks quite frankly, it's been amazing, I think, in corporate America and for, for governmental workers that have done it. And it's been pretty seamless also. I mean, we've all gotten used to, you know, uh, family members or pets walking in at Zoom conference calls, and it's, uh, it, it's kind of acceptable now, which is nice and fun. But if you look at the cost savings, right, from a corporate real estate standpoint on the backside of this, that's going to be substantial. And that's going to be a factor that really takes, takes hold as well. How do we reduce our footprint to, to accommodate for this incredible transformation that we've seen. Tom, I will just say, uh, saying that it's been pretty seamless, I think feels a little bit dissonant for anyone who's homeschooling their children at home while also trying to uh, manage a job. Just saying theoretically that, that that to me maybe isn't exactly the description that I would say, but I'll, I'll, I'll t- leave it there. I will say, Tom, there is a question going forward of the calculations by businesses with the cost savings of office space with productivity concerns, the idea that having people together generates ideas and that there's a certain motivation that comes from the camaraderie of a workplace. How do you sort of square that? Are there studies or anything scientific to look at uh, to make that determination? 
Well, I, to your first point about homeschooling children, I, I certainly feel your pain on that. But I will say, <laughs> I, I, I have the greatest VP of, of, of IT in history uh, helping me through this process, which is my 13-year-old daughter. Uh, she seems to have gotten Zoom and, and connectivity f- uh, repeatedly for me uh, during the course of the last few weeks. You, you're asking. Are you paying her? Uh, the allowance has gone up. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, there you go. So, uh, so, Health benefits are great. Uh, there, there is, yeah, there is a cost associated with it, I guess. Uh, but uh, you're asking a really good question. Are there any kind of tangible hard data studies right now? And, and the answer to that is no. We're looking at this all really. This is a live lab experiment that we're all looking at in real time. But you can tell, quite frankly, in, in terms of, you know, office closures that have taken place and shutdowns, you know, you can forecast out, well, what really is necessary, maybe on a corporate headquarters campus versus what is not. So, so those kind of uh, arithmetic discussions are really going on right now in, 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 in real time. So, Tom, just quickly here, I mean, are we going to see a migration of corporations from densely populated urban areas to perhaps less densely populated uh, suburban areas as a result of this pandemic? That's the question, the burning question in economic development right now. You know, for years you've had this kind of, we'll call it suburban or rural and urban divide, where the cities really had, had attracted so much in terms of young talent, in terms of corporate focus and, and headquarters really going back downtown. You know, it, folks on the sidelines of that for the last 10 or 15 years have been looking at this saying, you know, is this our opportunity to, to, to recast the argument to some extent? And that may be the case. Um, will it be entirely? No. I think cities offer really some unique value com- uh, combinations, some u- unique returns on investment. But may the presence that they have in those cities be as dense, be as intense? Are we going to have 100,000 square feet? Or maybe can we have some back office just for some you know, emergency-related issues? Uh, it also provides some cost-related savings. You know, This was kicked around a lot after 9-11 and never really came to fruition. I mean, effectively, the pandemic, from an economic standpoint, 9-11 everywhere in the corporate real estate world. So I think it will have a more profound impact where they start to look at, do we need that type of concentration? Is, do we need it at $100 and $110 a square foot versus being able to kind of separate our offices a little bit and, and maybe also add a, you know, a layer of security for employees? Tom Stringer, thank you so much for being with us. Tom Stringer, Corporate Real Estate Advisory Managing Director, Site Selection and Incentives at BDO, helping companies decide whether or not to invest in that office. The question getting that much harder now that the work from home experiment has come back with some positive results for certain companies. This is Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. A decade of jobs lost in one month. The question now is, after the worst economic report in history having to do with the U.S. jobs, how do we move forward? And joining us now to talk about that is Lindsay Piega, chief economist at Stiefel. Lindsay, this was a horrible report. It was expected to be bad. It was perhaps not quite as horrible as people expected, yet still confirmed uh, a catastrophic loss in the jobs market. What caught your eye when you looked under the hood of the headline numbers here? 
Well, you're exactly right. The headline was pretty much expected. The market was bracing for a very devastating report. But nevertheless, it still is a reminder of the devastating impact of the policies that have been put in place to contain COVID-19, essentially shutting down entire sectors of the economy. And that really is the most startling part of this report. You're seeing widespread losses across a number of different categories. Now, early on, we saw these job losses hit predominantly the hospitality sector. We saw restaurants being closed, hotels being closed. But what we've seen now is this second wave of layoffs coming through the economy, hitting those that we thought were more effectively able to work from home. So lawyers, government employees, even healthcare workers, at least those not on the front line. So what we're seeing is that the impact of these policies, shutting down the economy, forcing businesses to close, workers to stay at home, have really hit every corner of the economy. So, Lindsay, I'm thinking about some of the small and mid-sized businesses getting hit here. I mean, as you think about it, and a lot of those companies, they're not laying off people. They're literally closing. And so as I try to gauge what percentage of these, you know, more than 20 million people that lost their jobs in April will actually come back on the other side of this. How do you think about that? It's a good question. We saw the the Chamber of Commerce come out and say about 25 businesses have closed their doors, at least temporarily. But that report came out in early April, and it was based on the expectation that the economy would be back open within the coming days, uh, if not weeks. And so what we see now is with many states still with those at-home or stay-at-home orders in place through the end of the month, many of these businesses who thought they were just temporarily closing are going to be forced to permanently close their doors. So there still is a lot of optimism that jobs will come back, and some absolutely will. But even the businesses that are able to reopen are going to be facing a very different environment. Restaurants that reopen may only open with 20 tables instead of 40 tables, so they need fewer uh, wait staff, boutiques, limiting the number of people coming in at, at one time, may need fewer sales clerks. So even if we are able to salvage some of these small businesses around the country, it's likely that they're going to reduce staff, reduce hours, or both for their employees. Lindsay, I'm struck by the widening disparity between the haves and the have-nots with people who have lower wage jobs suffering disproportionately with job losses, people who do not have college degrees suffering disproportionately. How much does this set the nation back when it comes to those segments of the labor force that frankly have lagged behind in any recent recovery from, from economic downturns? Absolutely. Anytime you see any type of legislation or any type of natural scenario play out in the markets where it widens that divide can have very negative ramifications and make it increasingly more difficult for those at the bottom rungs of the labor market to claw their way back. And as we are seeing, as I mentioned, the hospitality industry, predominantly led by individuals with lower level paychecks, are being the hardest hit. And, of course, we know that many Americans live paycheck to paycheck, so even a loss of one or two weeks can have very devastating financial uh, ramifications for people in this country. So, Lindsay, I mean, the government in terms of, well, the Fed uh, easing uh, access to capital, the fiscal stimulus coming from Congress, uh, very, very aggressive to try to fight this thing, but it's coming at a cost. Our national debt is near $25 trillion right now. What are the economic ramifications of our balance sheet? 
Oh, it's it's very concerning. And I think on the one hand, when we look at the pain that's happening out in the labor market, this morning's report confirming that, we do know that the Fed and the federal government had to do something. They had to step in and take unprecedented action to help stem the fallout from these policies. But on the flip side, what we don't want to do is try and bridge the near-term gap, but leave the economy permanently uh, structurally impeded in terms of our productive potential going forward. And right now what we're seeing is very valuable savings and resources being depleted. And it's not just at the federal government. We're seeing debt, uh, the balance sheet at individual business, uh, local municipalities. This is really going to leave us in a crippled position and could actually retard growth for the next several years. So while we're helping to stem the pain from this short-term pandemic, we could actually be limiting the upside for the economy when we look out to 2021 and beyond. I mean, these are massive levels of debt. As you mentioned, we're expected to be around $25 trillion in debt. Uh, this, this is unprecedented levels. It's hard for the average American to even digest that level of debt. But it says essentially that for the first time since World War II, the U.S. would not be able to pay off its debt uh, based on the amount of production that we have in a given year. Now, back during World War II time, we were actually able to grow ourselves out of this debt level because as we swapped for wartime production, we were embarking on a four and a half percent decade long expansion. This time around, we'll be lucky if we even get back to that pre-corona trend pace of sub two percent. So we're already starting from a much lower level of activity. Again, if we see the consumer persistently constrained by financial constraints or concerned about their health, we could actually see the economy stuck in around a one, one and a half percent growth range for the next several years. Hey, Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. As always, Lindsay Piegza, Chief Economist for Stiefel Financial, joining us on the phone here. So, Lisa, there's certainly some uh, some cost, significant costs here to try to uh, combat the uh, economic effects of the pandemic. But again, uh, they come at a pretty significant price as well. So the, it's yeah. a balancing act. Although the interesting thing is that as the U.S. deficit climbs into near record territory, it hasn't mattered at all when it comes to the actual cost of financing with yields at record lows in the short end. A question, does it matter if the Federal Reserve basically monetize it by buying it all? Yeah, exactly right. And we're seeing, again, we've seen from the beginning of this, the Fed very, very aggressive here in pulling out all the stops and trying to support the liquidity in the market. We've had some uh, meaningful fiscal stimulus. More to come is the expectation uh, over the next couple of weeks. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor Data Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.